If you please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 16. We're going to be looking at just one verse this morning, verse 12. We'll be using the Pew Bible that's found on page 962, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 12. And in this last chapter of this letter, we see Paul tying up some loose ends. In the first section, he gave instructions concerning this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And in it, we saw principles on Christian stewardship and, and Christian giving. In the second section, Paul discusses his upcoming travel plans and how he would like to return to Corinth to spend a longer period with them, to, to work with them, to disciple them, to grow them from an immature to a, a more mature church. But at the moment, the Lord had opened up a wide door for effective work in Ephesus. So he planned to stay there a little longer, even in spite of this opposition and the adversaries that he had there. And last week, we looked at Paul's instructions for the Corinthians to welcome his, his partner in ministry, Timothy, and to put Timothy in ease and because he is a fellow servant of God. He is a fellow servant along with Paul. Well, in this one verse that we're looking at today, Paul discusses the travel plans not for himself or for his own associate, Timothy, but rather for Apollos, who is a, another missionary who has ministered to the Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, I do pray now for your illumination as your word is preached. Father, that your Holy Spirit will be with me. Lord, that I will speak your truth. I will speak your truth with the power of the Holy Spirit, that I will speak your truth in a way that is clear and compelling. And I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that we will hear from you. And when we have this encounter with your truth, that we will be changed. We will be changed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We want to see him today. He is the hero. He must increase. We all must decrease. And it's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, we started this study in 1 Corinthians last summer. This is actually the 47th sermon that we've done in 1 Corinthians. It's gone for about 15 months. And I want you to think back to last summer when we first started. Do you remember the first problem that Paul addressed in this letter, that he discusses in this letter? It's actually a first rebuke that he gives to the Corinthians. And we spent a lot of time on it, multiple sermons. And Paul actually discusses this problem from, from chapters 1 to chapters 4 in this letter. And the problem that they had is that there were divisions in the church. There was quarreling. There were factions. There were some that said, I follow Paul. Others who said, I follow Apollos. Others said, I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. And as we discussed when we looked at these chapters last summer, these divisions were not doctrinal. They were not divisions about theology. Paul and Apollos and, and Cephas, they all taught the same gospel. They all proclaimed the same Christ. The divisions were not centered on theology. They were not centered on truth, but rather they were centered on personalities, the personalities of the leaders. And the Corinthians were not thinking as Christians. That was the problem. They were thinking not as spiritual people. They were thinking as people of the flesh. They were thinking as infants in Christ, as those who are really indistinguishable from those who are unbelievers. See, there was jealousy among them. There was strife among them. They were acting no differently than you expect any other human institution. But my friends, the church is called to be different. 
See, Christ has removed this wall of hostility, this wall of hostility due to, to our ethnicity or due to our culture or due to our educational differences or societal differences. We are one in Christ. There is unity among God's people. And it's a unity that is founded on Christ. But these divisions in the Corinthian church, these Corinthians made, these divisions made the gospel look useless, powerless. It brought dishonor onto Christ. And sadly, sadly, the, the Corinthians aren't the exception, but really they are the norm among Christians, even among the apostles, even among those who lived with Christ, learned directly from Jesus Christ himself. We still see this sectarian thinking. In our gospel reading that, that Nathan just read for us from Luke 9, we see the disciples arguing. And what are they arguing about? Which one of them is greatest? Which one of them is greatest? We see them seeking to, to send down fire from heaven on this Samaritan village because they were insulted, because they weren't accepted, they weren't welcomed by unbelievers, like they should expect anything different from unbelievers. And most notably, we see them trying to stop another person who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. He was specifically ministering in Jesus' name. And what was the reason why they wanted to stop him? Why did they want to stop this man from casting out demons? Was it because he was blaspheming Christ? Was it because he was proclaiming errors? No. It was simply because he was not part of their specific group. As they say, because he does not follow with us. This man was proclaiming the same Jesus. He belonged to Jesus. But the disciples, the disciples opposed him just because he wasn't one of them. He wasn't in their group. And Jesus rebukes the apostles saying, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. In other words, they are united. They are united in Christ. They are on the same side. And the primary unity here, again, comes from Christ. They are united in Jesus Christ. And if they were proclaiming Christ, if they were proclaiming the gospel, then regardless of all these secondary differences, they are united. Regardless of whatever secondary differences, they are united. Now, there, there are many Differences in, in secondary doctrines. And secondary doctrines are, are doctrines that do not affect our salvation. They do not separate brothers and sisters in Christ. And these secondary issues include things like eschatology, the study of end times, or our understanding of how, God, how our free will and, and God's sovereignty work together in our salvation, our understanding of the, of the meaning and the mode of baptism, our understanding of the Lord's Supper, our understanding of ecclesiology, which is church government. See, Scripture is less clear in these areas. And brothers and sisters of goodwill, who earnestly are seeking to be obedient to Scripture, they may have different understandings of what Scripture teaches in these areas. And from a practical perspective, and really to keep people from violating their own conscience with respect to these secondary issues, organizational unity is not possible at this time. We still have spiritual unity, but we cannot have the organizational unity. And because of this, we have separate churches. Because of this, we have separate denominations. But my friends, we have unity in Christ. And as a Bible-believing Presbyterian, I can have spiritual unity with my Bible-believing Baptist brothers and Lutheran brothers and Anglican brothers, even though we cannot have organizational unity at this time. And the unity Paul commands is unity in Christ. It's unity in truth. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And a, a literal translation of the Greek in this last text, in this last part of verse 10 says, that you speak the same thing and that you be joined together in the same mind and the same outlook. See, the unity is that we speak the same thing. That is, we have the same confession. Jesus is Lord. We profess the same gospel. Gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, based on the authority of Scripture alone, all to the glory of the triune God alone, as we sang in our Reformation song. We are joined together in the same mind. That is, we have the same faith, faith in Jesus as he is presented in the gospel. We have the same outlook. That is the same hope, the same worldview. We trust the scripture alone. The scripture alone is our source of ultimate truth, the source of knowledge of the living God. My friends, everything else, everything else about us is secondary. Our social status, our wealth, our ethnicity, our vocations. All these temporal differences that were causing divisions in the Corinthian church, they are not to interfere with our eternal unity, which is in Christ. So this is the foundation of our unity. And what is the reason for the disunity that's seen in the Corinthian church? What is the cause of the disunity in our modern church? Well, Paul describes this disunity in verse 1, chapter 12. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And notice that each one of these leaders, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, who is, who is Peter, and of course Christ, each one of them were orthodox. Each one of them were orthodox in their teaching. Each taught and proclaimed the true gospel. So the difference with respect to these different factions that follow these different leaders is not due to doctrine, but was due to personality personality. And the church was looking for something, really something lesser than the gospel, the gospel in which they were united, something lesser than Christ in whom they were united, but rather they were looking to personalities, personalities of human leaders. And this is what caused the separation. This was the reason for the divisions. And my friends, sadly, this is, was just not a problem in the Corinthians. This is a problem for us today. This, this is a huge problem in the evangelical church, a church that should be united in doctrine. Far too many churches, far too many Christians are drawn to big personalities, celebrity pastors. They align and identify themselves based on big-name personalities rather than what we have in Christ. And this was a problem in the Corinthian church. This is the background that we come to, verse 16, 12 that we're looking at today. And in this verse, we see interaction of two of these leaders, two of the leaders of these factions, Paul and Apollos. In our New Testament reading from Acts 18, you may want to turn to it. I'm just going to look at that briefly, 18, 24 to 28. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogues. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So a couple of things to, to note here about Apollos. 
First of all, Apollos was an eloquent man. He spoke well. Now, now in Greek culture, much emphasis was placed on eloquence. In fact, speaking was a form of entertainment to the Greeks. The Greeks would go to, to listen to eloquent speakers the same way we would go to a, a music concert or, or watch a play. It really didn't matter to them the subject. It didn't matter if the person spoke truth or spoke falsehood. If he was a good speaker, he would gain a large following. This is in contrast to Paul. Paul, who did not consider himself an eloquent speaker. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or chapter 2, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, Paul was not the gifted speaker that Apollos was. And given his eloquence, it's understandable why Apollos would be popular and people would want to follow him. But Apollos was not simply eloquent. He was not just a good speaker. He was not just an empty mouthpiece. Apollos had content. He was competent in the scriptures. He was instructed in the ways of Jesus. He had theological education. Apollos taught truth. He didn't simply entertain. He communicated the gospel. He gave the life-giving message of the gospel. The same message that was taught by Paul. But he had this natural eloquence that Paul lacked. In addition to his message and eloquence, we're told that Apollos was fervent in the spirit. There There was an anointing to his words. There was a Holy Spirit enabling to his preaching. And it's really no wonder that Apollos gathered this, garnered this large following. He was a gifted man. And my friends, the church today is both blessed and cursed with many with the same talents as Apollos. There are many preachers today that are naturally gifted speakers. They can hold a crowd on the edge of the seats. They can bring an audience to tears of laughter or tears of sorrow. And sadly, unlike Apollos, many of these gifted speakers do not teach the truth. They do not, they're not competent in scripture. They are not trained in theology. And sadly, many of today's most popular preachers are simply entertainers, are simply motivational speakers, sprinkling their talks with a few religious words or a few scriptures taken out of context. But this is not all of the gifted speakers. And thankfully, thankfully there are many preachers who are like Apollos. They're not only naturally gifted speakers, but they speak the truth of scripture. They know scripture. They know theology. And these men powerfully proclaim God's truth in a way that is appealing and draws people in. There is, there is a Holy Spirit anointing that's not only attractive, but it actually has supernatural power, supernatural power to impart new life through the gospel. The famous 18th century Great Awakening evangelist, George Whitfield, he was one such man. Whitfield was actually trained as an actor, and he had this powerful voice. He could preach outside. He preached in outside settings to 30,000 people, And this was long before the time of a microphone. I mean, even in this small room, I need a microphone or you wouldn't be able to hear me. But he was out there preaching to 30,000. And it was said that Whitfield could drive a crowd to tears just by the way he said Mesopotamia. 
Can you imagine that? To tears. I make people laugh, by the way. I say, I usually stumble. It's not a really easy word to say, Mesopotamia. And, for, and, and you may know this, that Whitfield was actually good friends with the founding father, who's also a, an agnostic, Benjamin Franklin. And Franklin wrote that when he first heard Whitfield speak, he knew that Whitfield was a preacher. He knew that he was actually raising money for an orphanage, actually an orphanage here in Georgia. And Franklin, when he went, he said he resolved that he would not be affected by Whitfield's eloquence in his preaching. He would not be manipulated. He would not give a dime, not give a cent to it. And as Whitfield preached, Franklin found his resolve weakening. So he said to himself, well, I'll, I'll only give the copper coins. Then as Whitfield preached a little bit more, Franklin said, well, maybe the, the copper and the silver coins, but certainly not the gold coins. And by the time the basket came around, Franklin said he emptied everything he had in his pocket and gave it to him. A testimony to the power of Whitfield's preaching. But Whitfield was not simply an eloquent speaker. He also had a powerful Holy Spirit anointing on his ministry, which is evidenced by thousands of genuine conversions resulting from his preaching and making Whitfield a major figure in the Great Awakening of the 18th century. But even these characteristics alone are not sufficient. See, there are many preachers today who are gifted speakers, are competent in the scriptures, are orthodox in their theology, have a Holy Spirit-inspired ministry that draws many, many to true and saving faith, but they still ultimately fail. And why is this? Well, it comes down to pride. Pride is the reason for the failure. See, the fame and the applause, it goes to their head. And what that happens to them is they fail to be teachable. They refuse to be corrected. And this is particularly a danger that we see. It's a danger really to anyone. But young men who rise to national prominence in their 20s and their 30s, and the arrogance is almost always what leads to their downfall. And in many cases, it leads these men to fall into a sin that disqualifies them from ministry. But this wasn't the case with Apollos. See, Apollos was teachable. Acts 8.23 tells us that Apollos was humble enough to be instructed by Aquila and Priscilla. You see, Apollos, he was, he was similar to the, the disciples that we looked at in Acts 19 a few weeks ago. They, only, they knew something about Jesus. They had some partial truth, but they only had the baptism of John. And they needed to know the whole truth, the whole truth. It was, they, they had some truth, but it was an incomplete truth. And they needed Paul, as we saw in Acts 19. Paul came and provided what was missing. Well, the same is true for Apollos. He taught the truth, but it was an incomplete truth. He needed further instruction himself. And despite his great gifting, and despite how much God had already used him, he was humble enough, humble enough to accept this training from this married couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And you see this humility. This humility is essential for the servants of God. And I'm not just talking about pastors. This is for every servant of God, each one of us here. This humility is essential. Because without this humility, without this teachability, pride will always creep in. And it will make the servant of God susceptible to Satan's temptations. Say, no, you, it's all about you. It's about you. And it will lead to disqualifying and make us ineffective. And Satan wants nothing better. Nothing better than to take out one of God's servants. And the better the servant, the more he wants to take that person out. The more natural gifts he has, more he wants to take them out. And sadly, far too many have fallen to this due to this lack of teachability. And again, this is for everyone. If you're not a preacher, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean you. Every single Christian is called to be a servant of God. And if you lack this teachability, it will limit your effectiveness. 
Aquila and Priscilla, you remember, they were they were companions of Paul. They were fellow tent makers with Paul. That was their trade. They, they literally made tents, and that's how they supported their ministry. And it's important for us to realize that the training that Apollos received from Aquila and Priscilla, this is Paul's theology. This is what Paul had taught to them. Apollos taught the same thing that Paul taught. But we also need to understand that unlike Timothy, Apollos was not part of Paul's ministry team. He actually was independent. It was like he was in a different church. He wasn't under Paul's authority. He functioned independently. So this is the background so far. This is the background that we looked at now that we're ready to look at this verse, verse 16, 12. And from this verse, we can see really how both men worked to remove sinful divisions in the church and to ensure that these divisions would not, not, would not propagate. The desire of both men was to make sure that Christ alone and the gospel alone was given prominence, not them. Both men reflect the attitude displayed by John the Baptist in 3.30, John 3.30. And this is a verse that every Christian should have memorized, John 3.30. And it is he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. And each one of these men, each one of them sought to decrease in his own stature while increasing the stature of Christ. So now we're ready to look at this verse, verse 12 of, of chapter 16. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the brothers, with the other brothers, that's those who delivered the letter, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now the words now concerning, this most likely indicates that Paul here is reacting to questions that were raised by the Corinthians in their letter that they sent to Paul. They may have asked Paul about Apollos and asked if he could actually come, if they could send, if he could send Apollos to them with the letter. And the first thing we see here is Paul actually urged Apollos to visit the Corinthians. See, Paul's not worried about Apollos' presence, that it would undermine Paul's ministry. If they, if, if they got the letter from Apollos, they would just, just discard the letter because they had Apollos there and they would listen to his, his uh, uh, tr- teaching. They, Paul wasn't worried about that. Even though there were factions, even though Apollos was a, a more gifted speaker, a more gifted preacher than Paul, he wasn't worried. Paul was not intimidated. Paul did not seek to keep Apollos away from them. Paul didn't fear that Apollos would would be more popular than Paul. He didn't care. See, Paul knew that Apollos preached the gospel, and that was all he cared about. The gospel was being proclaimed. Paul knew that Apollos would be a benefit to the Corinthians, and Paul didn't worry about his own status. Paul's only concern was to make sure that Christ was proclaimed, and he didn't care where it came from. He didn't care. He didn't worry. Even if the person preaching Christ did it from less than pure motives, he didn't care. He said in his letter to the Philippians, he said, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here in prison for defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking somehow to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. That's all I cared about, that Christ was proclaimed. Paul's concern is not for himself. It's not for his reputation. Paul's only concern is that the gospel goes forth. And that's what we should be. Only the gospel goes forth. Not that we are the ones who, are, who get the glory. The second thing to notice is that Paul urges Apollos. He doesn't command Apollos. See, Paul is an apostle. He has apostolic authority. Paul was used by the Holy Spirit to, to record the very words of God 
to write scripture. But Paul understands that this authority is not native to himself. It is given to him. And just like the Old Testament prophets, Paul is limited to reveal only and to command only what the Holy Spirit reveals to him and what the Holy Spirit commands. He cannot go beyond what is given to him by the Holy Spirit. And likewise, a duly ordained pastor, a minister of the word of God, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, speaks God's words when he preaches. We believe that the word of God faithfully preached is the word of God itself. But that authority does not come from the preacher. It comes from God. The preacher is simply the vessel, the vessel for transmission of God's word. And the preacher is limited to only preach what the scripture teaches. If he contradicts the scripture, goes beyond the scripture, then the preaching is invalid. And Paul here is urging Apollos solely as a man. He's urging him solely as a fellow servant, not as apostle, not as apostle speaking for God himself, and, and not even as a, a supervisor, not as, not as he was, uh, had any formal organizational authority over Apollos. See, Apollos is not part of his ministry team, as such as Timothy. See, Paul had authority over Timothy. He could ask Timothy to go here or go to a specific church. Paul has no such authority over Apollos. They are equals, equals in separate ministries. The next thing we see is that Paul does not throw Apollos under the bus. In this letter, he doesn't say, well, you know, I urged him to come, but, but he had something more important to do. Hey, I guess he doesn't love you as much as I do. No, she doesn't do that at all. Paul doesn't attempt to make Apollos look bad. He presents the exchange and indicates that Apollos' decision to come or not to come is not due to any lack or concern for the Corinthians, but based on Apollos' own discretion, according to valid and reasonable circumstances. And neither, this, neither Paul nor Apollos, they don't slam the door into the idea of, of coming for the visit. But they indicate that Apollos does, in fact, have a desire to come to him, and he will come when he gets the opportunity. So we look at this verse with respect to Paul. Let's now look at it with respect to Apollos. We know that Apollos is humble. We know that he is a gifted servant of God. We know that Apollos is at least indirectly indebted to Paul for his knowledge of the gospel. He was trained by Aquila and Priscilla, part of Paul's ministry team. Apollos, like Paul, is also indebted to the teaching and ministry of the other apostles who were with Jesus during his earthly ministries. Uh, Chiefly among these would include Peter or Cephas. And now this is somewhat speculative, but I think it's keeping in what we know about Apollos' character and the circumstances in Corinth. I suspect that Apollos is purposely staying away from Corinth for the purpose of not further dividing the Corinthians into factions. See, Paul's strength is his writing. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul's critics say of him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his, bold, but his bodily presence is weak and his, speak is, his speech is of no account. See, Apollos, on the other hand, is impressive in person. He's eloquent. Apollos, like Paul, would have abhorred these, these divisions, this hero worship uh, of mere men in Corinth. And he may feel that this problem is best addressed by a letter by Paul, a strongly worded letter by Paul, rather than him coming in his own personal presence. In fact, his preaching in person may have actually had the exact opposite effect. So Paulus here is willing to decrease in his popularity for the sake of the spiritual growth, for the sake of the maturity, for the sake of the unity of the Corinthian church. And Apollos, like Paul, Apollos, like John the Baptist, seeks personally to decrease so that Christ may increase. And I think this is the clear application for each one of us here today. 
Each one of us must display this same humility, this same heart, this same unity. Christ alone must increase, and each of us must decrease. But here's where it's going to really get difficult. We must not only decrease so that Christ increases, but we must allow, we must even help others to increase so that Christ can increase in them. We, we don't just decrease. We must allow and help others to increase so that Christ is increased in them. My question is, are you willing to do this? Am I willing to do this? Are we willing to help other Christians, other churches, other ministries to grow, even at our, the expense of our own ministries, while we decrease so that Christ can ultimately increase, so that Christ can be glorified? And I suspect that this is not the case. Our real goal is not Christ's glory. Our real goal is our glory. Years ago, I was a ruling elder at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Blacksburg, Virginia, is where Virginia Tech is. And at this time, among the leadership uh, and the circumstances, we felt very strong leading to plant a daughter church in the town Christiansburg, which is about, it was about a 20-minute drive away. And at the time, Christiansburg was a growing community. It was more affordable in Blacksburg, so many of our younger families were moving into Christiansburg, were from Christiansburg. So planting a church was, was what we felt to do. But planting this church caused a major problem. See, Grace Covenant, the church that we were going to, we, we started going to about 2002, and this was about, 2000 and, about 2012, 13, when we made this decision. And it had changed a lot. When we first came there, the Sunday attendance was really not much more than we have here in Northgate. It was, it was a small church. But then RUF came to Virginia Tech, and with that, we brought all the students with RUF ministry. Then other ministries, crews started coming, campus outreach, a bunch of other little ministries started coming. We got inundated with, with, with uh, students and with faculty and, and uh, with uh, staff members. And this little church of about 80 people when we first started going, mostly families, grew to about 300 or more, mostly college students. Now, college students are great. They bring a lot of energy to the service. They bring a lot of discipling opportunities, ministry opportunities to the church. But college students consume a lot of resources. I don't know if you know college students. They eat a lot. And we fed them often at this church. And and they're college students, so they don't have jobs. They don't... Uh, contribute financially. So we were a church of about 400, but we had the finances of a church of about 100, 120. And we're now attempting to plant a church. And to make matters worse, a good number of our grown-ups, that is the people actually financially supporting the church, they lived in Christiansburg. They would become part of the core group of this plant. And the church planted great. Uh, they got a, a large amount of money from the Presbytery to get started. They had about a third of the grown-ups, the, the, the financial supporters, went with this church. But Grace Covenant left behind. We started struggling. We had to support all these students with fewer people. So when we'd have potlucks, we would be making multiple meals. So each family would like try to feed 10 families as we were coming there because the students would come. And, you know, you have... 400 students coming and eating, and you have uh, 100, pa- 100 uh, families trying to support them, or 100 members, probably only about 20 families. So it was, it was uh, very difficult. Finances were very difficult for some time. But Grace Covenant was willing to decrease in size, was willing to have a, a very difficult time, decrease in importance and influence, so the kingdom of God could increase through this church plant. Another area of application is prayer. We've got to look at our prayers. 
Do we pray for others? Do we pray for others to be successful? Or are we only praying for ourselves? Do we pray for other churches? Do we pray for other ministries? I heard it said that every prayer, every church prays for revival. But it says you don't really mean it until you pray that the revival will happen in the church down the street, not in your own church. Do we do that? We want to see revival or we want to just see our own church grow? See, is it all about us? Is it all about our brand? Or is it about God? Is it about the kingdom? Do we want to see ourselves increase? Or do we want to see the kingdom of God increase? And this is, this is subtle. It really is. We can claim we are building the kingdom of God when in reality all we're building is our own kingdom. We need to remember. We need to remember what our mission is. We remember, need to remember what our purpose is. It is to, not to build up ourselves, but it is to proclaim Christ. To proclaim really the, the most amazing message ever. To proclaim the message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, the world is under a death sentence. The world has no hope. And we have the answer. The answer is Christ. Everything, everyone seems to have the magic bullet. They, they think that the, the problem is the, the economy. The problem is the environment. The problem is if we just had political justice. All these things. No, the only answer is Christ. We are broken inside. And we need to be changed. We need to become a new creation in Christ. We need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And without that... Without that, there is not going to be change. And the church has that message. We are to give that message. We are to proclaim that message. We are given a commission, a great commission. We are to go and make disciples of all the nations. We are to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are to teach them all that Jesus has commanded. And we know, we know the most amazing fact that while we do this, He is with us. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. And this is the reason why we can do it. This is why we can do it. This is why we can do what is so unnatural, that we can decrease so he increases. We can decrease and let others increase because we know. We know that he is with us. We know that Christ is in us. We know that Christ fills us with his power. He fills us with his perspective. And our joy, our joy does not come from ourselves. It does not come from what we do. It comes from him. It comes from seeing him. And my friends, when we decrease... When we become decreased, when we become smaller and smaller, he becomes bigger and bigger. And this fills us with joy. This fills us with inexpressible joy. So, friends, this is so much bigger than ourselves. This is our privilege. This work is our joy. And we are to humble ourselves before the Lord and let him lift us up. Let him fill us up. Fill us with his peace. Fill us with his joy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to see you increase. We want to decrease. And this is not natural. Every single one of us, our natural selves, will fight against this. We want to be glorified. And Father, I pray that you will change my heart. I pray that you will change every heart here that hears my voice. That we will look. Our number one, our number one joy will be see you glorified. We see make much of you. And that we will be well and we will be content to decrease, to take a, a back seat knowing that when we do that, that is when you will fill us with the most amazing, the most inexpressible joy, that you will then give us that contentment that our hearts struggle for, that can never be found in our own performance, even though we strive for it. Only then can we have the peace that we long for. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.